0: Space is an interesting thing because a lot of people really like to think about it. Like when I was a kid, I loved to think about it because it seems so vast and difficult to comprehend. And the idea of space and like that I was a part of it, you know, as a kid, it made me feel like bigger, and that was super empowering. But the uh, nice paradox is that in order to actually engage in space exploration, you are ultra confined in a very tiny space i mean the international space station and those modules are just jammed packed full of stuff when you're out in space you're in a spacesuit. you're you're contained you're confined it's the smallest spaceship there is and uh, you know a mars habitat i think really what would happen is it would have to be inside a cave somewhere to shield uh from radiation you know Mm. cosmic rays and solar rays so And you're going to have the bubble that you're in anyway. And so, I mean, you go so far to explore and like in big, I guess, humanity, (laughs) but you are stuck like in a dome inside a cave.
1: Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. This week we have science journalist and former laser physicist Kate Green on the show. Kate is another in the long list of amazing people I met through the Santa Fe Institute and their interplanetary festival this summer. Amazingly, I now know more than one person who has lived for an extended period of time in a simulated space colony, which is kind of cool, but not as cool as being one of those people. Kate's writing has also touched on artificial intelligence and big data and the changing relationship of human beings to our environment of knowledge. She's also taught creative writing in women's prisons, which I find especially interesting. There's kind of a through line that we discuss later on in this episode. A theme of mind and imagination in relationship to confinement and how some of the biggest adventures we can have take place in some of the smallest places. But first, I want to thank everybody who has been supporting this show on Patreon, including this week's new supporter, Dave Hodgins. Securing, recording, editing, and publishing these interviews every week takes an unbelievable amount of time, and this is a one person operation. So your support really makes this show possible and I'm deeply deeply grateful to everyone who's chipping in 2 5 10 20 bucks a month. It's good to know that so many of you out there agree that these are vital conversations, that these ideas and these issues deserve thoughtful and in-depth exploration. I've been a professional painter, a fine artist for the last 10 years and I've always squeaked by But living from painting sale to painting sale is really precarious and scary, and it makes a huge difference to know that every month I'm going to be able to pay my bills and find the time to work on this show and to grow it and nurture it and give it the love and the energy that it needs. So thank you again. And thanks to everybody, the 100 plus people that have reviewed this show on iTunes which I think all of you probably know is one of the most effective strategies for getting these podcasts into the ears and minds of people that we'll never otherwise meet. And for me, the biggest and most important part of this entire project is bringing people who otherwise might never encounter one another into conversation, into the synergy and the possibility. And yeah, that means telling your friends and your family when you hear a great episode, but that also means letting strangers know you think this show is cool. And one of the best ways to do that is by reviewing it. So again, thanks everybody who's been doing that. If you want a more intimate experience and special access, please do go check out patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and learn about all of the perks that are afforded you by becoming a paying member of this community. And for everyone, no matter your affluence or lack of affluence, There's the Facebook discussion group where I post new interesting stuff almost every day. And now there's a ton of other regular users in the group who are doing the same. And it's really lively and wonderful. So go look us up on Facebook if you aren't in there already. And lastly, a special shout out to transhumanity.net. This shows featured sponsor working on making artificial general intelligence safe and available to everyone and not merely the province of some freaky military industrial elite. Way to go, you guys. Go to transhumanity.net and check out their extensive archives of interesting media, as well as their new podcast, which is produced and published entirely by AI. Very interesting experiment there. That's it, folks. We've got some great episodes in. In the weeks to come, including a fabulous conversation with Mark Nelson, one of the eight brave souls who locked themselves inside Biosphere 2 back in the 1990s, as well as with Patricia Eastman, a facilitator of plant medicine ceremonies. But for now, I present Kate Green, science journalist, explorer, creative writer, interesting person. Enjoy and I'll see you next week. Kate Green, welcome to Future Fossils.
0: Thank you. It's good to be here.
1: Yeah. So you are, I don't know which number you are, I think you're number three on the release schedule of uh, cool people I found out about at Interplanetary Festival at Santa Fe Institute. And they had you there, in part because of your science writing, in part because of your experience with physics, uh, and then in part because you participated in a Mars colony simulation. So you're an interesting, well-rounded person, and why don't we... uh, Why don't we start, just like, how did you get into the sciences and science writing? I guess that's probably the right place to launch this.
0: Oh, sure. Um, It's a great question. Yeah, the um, Interplanetary Festival was a fantastic place uh, to meet a lot of interesting people and just get a lot of new ideas. So I'm not surprised that that you collected a bunch of uh, (laughs) interviews from that experience. Um, But as far as my science writing goes, I mean... As a kid, I was always interested in science. I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, That really, you know, I had a a sort of space word bent. Uh, I was super into black holes. In fourth grade, I had a subscription to Science News Magazine. I don't know if you know about that one. It's like a little pamphlet that um, is pretty thin. It comes out like... every two weeks now, but at the time it came out every week and it was just like all the science news you could want. And, um, I would just devour it for all of the black hole news <laughs> and all of the astrophysics. So I, at, in fourth grade, I had determined that I would become an astrophysicist. Um, so, uh, that kind of, that kept my interest for a long time, you know, uh, high school happened and I was, okay at math but i wasn't great at math and that didn't feel good it didn't feel good to be not great at math so <laughs> i kind of thought maybe physics isn't for me um i also took some physics classes um that i'm going to say looking back were not that well taught but um i didn't excel in either um in fact my only two Cs in my high school career uh, came in calculus two and physics two my senior year. I mean, <laughs> I might have had a case of senioritis at that point, too. But yeah, so I wasn't some rock star physicist mathematician in high school. And I was thinking, well, you know, I like biology. I'm, I seem to be able to connect the dots uh, pretty well in all of my bio classes, and chemistry is fine, too. So um, I went to college for biology. Um, oh, and me, too. Oh yeah, what yeah. kind of biology were you interested in?
1: Eleven, uh, evolutionary, no, evolutionary <laughs> and ecology. It was it was oh. combined programs at the University of Kansas. So, I got uh, I was doing paleo ecological stuff during the summers. So that's that was where I wanted to take it. But uh,
0: whoa, wait, when were you at the University of Kansas?
1: 2001 to 2005.
0: Okay, we completely overlapped. That's exactly when I was at the University of Kansas doing physics. Yes.
1: Whoa, crazy.
0: I mean, 2001 to 2004. And I know people in the anthropology department. Do you know
1: Christina Warrener? No, no. I never really got deep into anthro, but I definitely was in the physics building sometimes. Malott Hall? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was was in um, Malott and Hayworth and... dyke for a lot of the, 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 the museum hall for yeah, a lot of yeah. the, the upper level courses and, um, uh, yeah, wow. crazy. So, you know, rock, shark Jayhawks and all of that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that's amazing. And I actually, um, have a great suggestion a KU alum, um, that you might want to look into. She, um, her name is Christina Warner and she's done Ted talks and she's a very, um, a well-known anthropologist she kind of designed the field of uh, whatever it is she uses dental calculus um, on ancient teeth to determine like the diets of ancient people oh. and following like the evolution of gut microbiomes around the world this is her research she's kind of invented it from the ground there are basically two groups that do it now um and she's in germany um at a max planck institute so wow. um, yeah, I'd highly recommend I'll send you information about her. Yeah, I please. Think that, I think that you guys would have a really interesting conversation. Yeah, so crazy. Nice connection. Yeah, rock chalk. <laughs> Amazing. Um yeah, well I but I went to KU for grad school. Before that, you know, I was uh-huh. I went to a very small liberal arts college in Kansas called St. Mary College. It's now the University of St. Mary, and that's in Leavenworth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my and sister lives I- in Leavenworth. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, yeah, Yeah. that tiny little campus. Um, yeah, that's where I wanted to be a biologist. You know, I got there and I was just like, I want to learn about, you know, cancer research and maybe contribute something to the world. Um, and then, you know, through a couple semesters of classes, I was not really getting too excited about the stuff I was learning and, um, was finding that, I was much more interested in chemistry, and then, you know, I took an intro physics class uh, in college and really kind of killed it. You know, I was just like, wow, evidently I'm pretty good at physics, and so um, I just, I thought, well, why don't I do as much physics as I can? Uh, The problem was, since it was such a small school, there wasn't a physics major. Uh, There's a chemistry major, and, you know, I took physical chemistry, and then I, like, convinced the um, physical chemistry professor to you know teach me an extra physics course and I was taking I was maxing out on my math courses because I had I had great professors to teach math and um, you know they wanted me to be a math major and I thought no you're not talking about you're not talking to the right person like there's no way I could be a math major but it turns out I'm actually okay at math I think I just had um, bad teaching and I think that happens to a lot of people and it really discourages a lot of people so. In college, I had a complete shift in identity in terms of like um, what I was capable of mathematically, and then also what my interest was um, again back to back to physics you know you know my my fourth grade self was emerging again to think about like black holes and fun stuff, <laughs> although I ended up um I ended up focusing more focusing on lasers uh because that had uh, sort of um my chemistry background played well into looking at like semiconductor lasers and LEDs, which is what I ended up doing in
1: grad school. At whoa, University whoa, 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 whoa. I need to I okay. So I just st- I just started using a uh, desktop laser cutter and engraver. Ooh, uh, fun just about a week ago i've had it i had it pre-ordered for like two years before it arrived and then it sat on a table looking menacing and mm-hmm. uh, daunting for about eight months and then finally i have i my friends for like pushed my ass into the pool by commissioning <laughs> me to do a, a like laser engraved acrylic tickets for their festival so i'm like i'm in like laser zone right now and and primed to be excited about what whatever you were researching in grad school.
0: (laughs) Well, um laser cutters and engravers and even laser pointers are really um interesting and fun and like super um tangible applications and I was not working anywhere near those. Uh so (laughs) the sort of lasers I was I mean I was working with mid-infrared lasers and LEDs, which are um, invisible. The light that they emit is invisible. And mm-hmm. the applications are like chemical sensing, military countermeasures, you know, um, to sort of deflect heat-seeking missiles, that sort of thing. Um, so we got Department of Defense funding. Um, but oh, yeah, also, that's yeah.
1: boring.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> and test um, funding for... Um, glucose, like a uh, subcutaneous glucose sensing. So, um, developing, um, glucose monitors for people who are diabetic or, um, have, um, an insulin sensitivity for under the skin. Oh,
1: that reminds me not to totally take us off track, but you know, you heard that thing, I'm sure about judges being more charitable after lunch, like on the cases mm-hmm. that happen right after lunch because they've, their blood mm-hmm. sugar is higher. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like there could be, like in the future, we're going to have robots with infrared blood glucose detection capacity (laughs) that are going to know when to talk to somebody and when not to, to get a different result.
0: Like a red flag, green flag. Yeah, this Uh, this,
1: (laughs) blood sugar is too low to have a conversation with this person right now.
0: I feel like mothers are very good at that with their children. Um <laughs> like 4 p.m. rolls around and they just shove a snack at their kids. <laughs> like they're very good at glucose detection. Mm. So, yeah, I guess um that takes me up to my grad school days. You know, I was always writing. Um like as a kid I wrote stories, science fiction stories and um in college I wrote for the literary magazine. It was just, you know, you know what a bunch of students put together for St Mary College it wasn't anything too fancy but i would write um i think i did like a a short sort of like layperson's explanation for um special theory of relativity just seeing if like what I could get away with like if the the literary people at the school would be like no way you can't put this in here or like yes we'll take it and so anyway they they decided to cut me some slack and they let me do that and I think I did something else about like the Tacoma narrows bridge disaster and the harmonics um so kind of explaining the differential equations that could describe why that bridge collapsed so what I loved about saint mary for me it was a liberal arts school it is a liberal arts college. And so all of my science classes and my math classes were very integrated with storytelling of some sort. So I was often writing creative papers in my math classes and in my physics classes. Um, I They were either assignments or if they weren't like um, explicit assignments, I would kind of asked to either modify an assignment or just like do it on my own. And the professors were really okay with that. So I got to do, I got to do a lot of stuff at St. Mary college. I published like original chemistry research, uh, like in the journal of computational chemistry as an undergrad. And that was pretty unusual. I mean, it was like, you know, small schools are great if you kind of go in with a lot of energy and, and, um, really become friends with the professors and, you know, like, uh, have allow them to mentor you, you know what I mean? So, um yeah, it was a great time. Gosh, you're just getting me I'm thinking back. I'm feeling very nostalgic. And I also played volleyball and that was a fun thing. I was there on scholarship to play volleyball. So like my whole college experience was really quite wonderful. And it and that kind of that launched me into grad school. And in grad school, let's see I I Joined the American Astronautical Society, like the KU chapter of that, is uh-huh. basically a bunch of aerospace engineers uh, who wanted to be astronauts, and so I dipped into that crowd and told them I'd write their newsletter for them. So that there was some writing there. I, I became obsessed with science journalism at that point, and I was reading all the science journalism I could. I was reading books about journalism. I was. Like by fire hose, taking in a sort of journalistic education just everywhere I could get it. I wasn't necessarily doing it other than writing this newsletter, uh, which wasn't journalistic at all. It was just you know putting something together um, every month or so. But I was I was really gearing my brain toward explaining technical topics to a lay audience. So by the end of my three years, I did I got a master's degree and. Um, you know, since I went in with a chemistry degree, uh, I took an extra year of like upper-level undergraduate physics classes, and then I, t- I did two years of like a master's program, so I came out with an MS. But I had a professor who really liked the way I wrote my lab reports, mm. <laughs> and he one day slipped an issue of the Economist in my mailbox and like opened to the the page where they had their call for science writing interns. So it's called the Casement internship, and um. Mm, I saw that, I read that like little is in a blue box like at the bottom of the page and I read it and like instantly I started to get like sweaty palms. I kind of <laughs> I had a physical response to that in this way that I mean it sounds absurd because I didn't actually know that I would get it, but like I felt like there was nothing more right for me. Mm. And so I went to the library, read all the economist science and technology sections from, you know, I don't know, two or three years back, um, just to really integrate the, the voice of the magazine into like my own thinking. And because um, it has such a distinct voice and, yeah. and also to see like what sort of topics they were covering, what would be interesting. And such a great thing happened. Um, I came across at KU, some research that was um, not yet published was going to be published, and I knew it would be. um, I I knew that it would make a great topic. It was about um, gamma ray bursts and the possible link between a nearby gamma ray burst and and mass extinctions on Earth.
1: Oh, hot damn. We're getting into it now. Okay. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Oh, I like. I feel like I hit the absolute jackpot because I had the researchers right there at the University of Kansas. And I knew from reading all these back issues that that is definitely a topic of interest, but like that topic and that actual research hadn't been covered. And then there was also like a legitimate science writer at KU um, named Roger Martin, who uh, one of the physicists put me in touch with. And this guy... Uh, read over my application letter and the, the story, the subsequent story that I wrote and gave me a few tips. And, you know, I actually, I was just like lousy with resources to make this thing happen. And it happened. I, in 2004, I went to London and I became a science writer via The Economist. And it was, I mean, it was an incredible, like just a jumpstart into a science writing career. I, I mean, I feel extremely lucky.
1: Yeah, that's it's. It's interesting listening to all this stuff that you're saying. There are so many points along the way. You said it yourself about the difference between a good teacher and a bad teacher, and what a difference that makes in the formation of a person's passion in a particular mm-hmm. area, and just the being rewarded early on. You know, mm-hmm. getting that like forming the uh, the dopamine circuit. You know, it's like, oh, my parents think I'm great at piano. I'm gonna keep playing piano whatever it is and just it's funny i think so many people think that there are and and to some degree there there must be people that are just like born athletes or born musicians or born journalists but it's it's amazing how contingent that seems and just how it's like i think it's important on some sort of cultural level to remember just how i think it has a lot less to do with the type of person and a lot more to do with the type of uh, reinforcement that we get. I know. think
0: that that is a fascinating observation. And I think it took me a little bit to realize that that's what's going on. So like going back and telling my story, I could very easily tell the story of I did this, I did that and not mention at all the, the teachers, the mentors that like kept showing up and um, what you said about like parents encouraging you. Oh my gosh. I, my parents were nothing but supportive of any ridiculous thing I wanted to do. And I mean, they were the ones who got me the subscription to science news magazine when I was a precocious fourth grader wanting to be an astrophysicist. And they didn't say it might be above your reading level. They said, sure, here it is, you know? And, um, so yeah, absolutely encouraged from a very young age and then it, it like a self-reinforcing loop for sure, I, I'd have to say. So um, everything that I've done is like the result of like network effects and just this web that I've grown up in that's cocooned me, that's allowed me to change and grow and learn and then, you know, go from there. So. Yeah, that's a really good. That's a really good observation.
1: I, I'm curious about what network effects got you into a simulated Mars habitat on uh, <laughs> Hawaii. Like, what's what was what's the story with that?
0: Well, I had been a science writer for a while, so I guess I saw. Let me 2013. Um. It must have been early 2012. I should have this um, this date more solid in my mind.
1: Well, everything before 2013 is pre-apocalyptic. So <laughs> it's like it's state-specific memory. It's like it, you you probably weren't on your phone the majority of time back then. Well, I
0: was on Twitter a lot, and I can tell you <laughs> that's part of why I um, that's that's the main reason why um, I did the Mars experience because. Ah. It was late two thousand and eleven or early two thousand and twelve, and I was bored, um most likely because I was scrolling through Twitter or trying to avoid work. I was freelance writing at the time, living in Nashville with my wife. She um, was going to Vanderbilt uh, for her MFA in fiction. Mm-hmm. And I came along, and you know, it was great because my work was portable. And so I was, you know writing some stories for, I think, like discover magazine, u s. News World Reports. And just, like, scrolling through Twitter, and I saw this NPR article on why astronauts like Tabasco sauce in space. And I thought, well, gosh, I wonder. And so I clicked. And um, at the very bottom of the article, so, I mean, I guess long story short, uh, stuffy noses uh, because of low gravity shifts fluid in your body. And so um, you can't taste uh, food as well and so there's a, oh. a theory that you're as an astronaut the reason why astronauts tend to eat less over time when they're in space and that is a real effect is one reason might be because they don't get as much enjoyment out of food because they have stuffed up noses they can't taste it as well Again, uh, so with the that's
1: reinforcement Holy mm-hmm. crap. And then you think of like the aliens. Sorry. This is just no, like bro. this notion from uh, the exopolitical folklore that the little gray men that are visiting our planet ostensibly are actually future human beings that are re- mm-hmm. like going backward in time. And they've got those, they look like fetuses. They've got those tiny little <laughs> mouths. And it's like, well, that's, that's cause they've been living in space for 20,000 years. Yeah, you that's know? right. They're this just, is what happens. Yeah. They're just sort of pallid and probably on a drip. You know, anyway, so (laughs) it makes sense. Yeah,
0: you're not using limbs so much.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, who cares? You're just floating around, you know? Yeah. It must be great, really. But anyway, yeah. So there you were.
0: So, yeah, so there I was learning about astronaut noses. And um, at the end of the article was a call to participate in a study that was going to explore this question further. And I thought, well, okay, what is that about? And I clicked on that. And that took me to a page that was. I mean, it was like my wildest imagination. I'm in my wildest imagination. I couldn't have conceived of such a thing. It was a call for participants to be fake astronauts for four months in a simulated Mars habitat in Hawaii to study um, space food systems. And you know, as I read more, I saw okay, limited water usage, limited resources. You bring your own science experiment to keep you busy. You're there with five other people. Uh, you can't go outside except when wearing spacesuits. And you're basically providing data to, for NASA um, for a possible future mission to Mars. And once again, my palms started to sweat. My heart began to race. I had a very physical response to the thought of me doing this thing that I was reading about. And I thought, wow, this is, this is really for me. <laughs> so I applied. And I applied as a science journalist and as a scientist because that, I have both as my background. And I kept my application short because I figured they'd get a lot of them. And turns out I made it to the top nine and um, then made it to the top six. So that's how that
1: happened. So, what do you think it is about that response, that physical response? Because, you know, I've do you think do you do you ever get that, and it's a dud? Like, do you ever get that, and it just turns out that you're you're not on the right track, or do you think that th- that's a clue? And, th- and this is a question I don't really get to talk to people with like a rigorous scientific background. You know, I, I talk to mm-hmm. a lot of people that just sort of take it for granted that you know, there's a lot of information your body is processing that doesn't make it up to the conscious level and that the intuition is in some sense, some, you know, a valid disclosure of, of something. You it know? is,
0: it is, it's an interesting question. And there's a chance that I've minimized the times when it's happened and like the result hasn't been uh, positive, but I, I don't actually think I get it that often. Um, because it's, it's profound, you know, um, it's a, it's a very sure feeling and it like, and it makes me a little uncomfortable because, um, mm, I hate to think that, well, part of it is like, is it ego? Is it confidence? Or is it just like recognition of a, a really good match with like my interests and my desires and an opportunity that I encounter? And maybe, I mean, maybe it happens too with people you meet, like, um, and that you just know that this is an important person for you too. I mean, I think that, I think that there's something similar there actually. Um, yeah. so yeah, it's almost like meeting a person that you're just like, Oh, this is going to be a really important person in my life. I, I need to be friends with them and, and, you know, just kind of following through and then, um, yeah, it's, it's. It's worked out for me. You know, another thing happened too uh, recently. Well, within the past few years, you know, I applied to grad schools to do an MFA in poetry, and I applied to three schools. But the one I became like really obsessed with um, was Columbia University, and um, yeah, it was accepted and it got fellowship money, and am doing that. and finishing up my second and last year, um, starting actually this September. Uh, So that was, that's been kind of like my third big experience with like, what am I going to do with my life? And these things present themselves. And then like, and, but I feel like there's something in me that really goes after it too.
1: Yeah. Well, see, that's, you know, that's my thinking on this lately because the last time I experienced something like that came after, I had a a pretty solid uh, editorial gig a couple of years ago and, then suddenly I didn't. And Mm -hmm. ever since I've been like, what am I doing? You know, in this sort of malaise of, of, you know, I should be in a different place in my life by now. And then, um, you know, then started the podcast and that gives me something to, to occupy myself while I'm still like, you know, uh, a Jew in the wilderness for 40 years, kind of Mm -hmm. in between sure things. And then, um, you know, not to, you know, hex this, event or whatever but Santa Fe Institute posted their social media specialist oh, gig this yeah. summer when I was starting to talk to them about doing this interview series and they actually sent me the position you know and were really as supportive in it as they could professionally be mm-hmm. um and I had the same sort of like You know, I've been, I've been like sweaty about this for months as this (laughs) thing has gone on. And it's been this thing where it's like everyone I've spoken to about it is like, yes, I can't imagine anyone more suited for this. And it's, but the point is not necessarily so much the intuition piece of it, although that may be part of it, but also that when you get that excited about something, it's like all other things being equal, there's the red team and the blue team and the red, Mm -hmm. we know physiologically that red intimidates the opponent. That the you know that there's mm. something about seeing blood or whatever that the red team has a small but statistically significant advantage over the blue team just oh, wow. for the color. Oh Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it was like part of why they paint a lot of prisons pink because it supposedly subdues people and it leads to a diminishment of prison riots. Hmm. Um, so I think about that with respect to this kind of an event where it's like maybe it was just maybe we have it backwards and it's the physiological response. That makes you like lift a car off of your kid or whatever, you know. That it's just you, you're like super powered in your yeah, like, application you skills. It's just like I need this, I must yeah. have it. And they, they're, they're like, oh wow, that person is a, you know, intense. Yeah, it just
0: shines. Something yeah. about you is just like shimmering to to other people, and so there's no way it's not happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Wh- which comes first? It's it's a really
1: Or is causation just totally the mistake here? And that these are, (laughs) you know, because there's other people that we've talked to on the show, and and we're stepping a little into the deep end here, but because of uh, your abiding lifelong interest in black holes, I feel like this is a safe (laughs) place to go with you, that, you know, there's some kind of compelling evidence out of some engineering anomalies, research departments, notably Princeton's, that... We can measure the influence of an emotionally significant event on random number generators hmm. before it even happens. Hmm. And that there is like a bell curve of uh, statistical skewing away from the normal and into standard deviations of patterned numerical outputs from these machines of all different kinds that seems to suggest that that there is some sort of disturbance or measurable phenomenon of some mysterious kind surrounding events like nine 11 or the election of Barack Obama Mm. um, on worldwide networks of random number generators. And so this, this suggestion that there may be, that maybe that we do actually uh, receive information of some kind from the future. And if, if that's the case, then our, our sort of, times arrow of cause and effect is going to be, uh, pretty dramatically re repainted as like a, a matrix of moments sort of contributing to each other or something. I don't know.
0: Right. You know, I mean the study of this sort of thing, it's, it's gone in and out of fashion and it's interesting. I hadn't heard the, uh, the, about the Princeton research, but like, um, SRI in, um, Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. uh, Stanford Research Institute, uh, famously looked at sort of psychic phenomena. I'm not saying that this is the same thing, but like legitimate research funds went to understanding um, communication between people that wasn't potentially um, measurable consistently, uh, but seemed to leave some sort of um, physical evidence of its existence. Um, so I think I'm, I'm always interested in um, what sort of questions can get asked in science um, and what's okay to ask and what isn't and like the framing of it and so um, <laughs> I'm definitely gonna look into this uh, this random event generators uh, yeah, issue it's, it's
1: um, the global consciousness project is what they call it now after I think it's just oh gosh
0: oh yeah I see it yeah I
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, and they're, that's after they closed the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab after 27 years and did some like intense metastatistical studies on their own publications to yeah. show that the so-called file, file drawer effect, which for listeners is an argument used against extraordinary claims that for every one published findings suggesting something like psychic phenomena or information from the future is real. There must be all of these other unpublished negative findings. Mm-hmm. And and their statistical analysis of their own research suggested that there have to be, I think it was like millions or maybe even billions of unpublished negative results for mm-hmm. their stuff to be inconsequential. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, if you do look it up, I'd be super fascinated to know what another uh, rigorous Process science-oriented person would think of that, but I want to. Mm-hmm. I want to get into. We've been on this for like forty minutes, and I want to get into your actual experience. There's a couple things I, I hope that we can get to on this. One is your uh, experience in the Mars simulation, mm-hmm. and then one is you have on your Twitter profile photo. You have a picture of a baby electroencephalogram, mm-hmm. and that. And we've brought up parenting a couple times on this one too. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just very. Whichever one you want to stab first, I guess, <laughs> Well, sure.
0: That one's easy. Um, I'm not a parent, um, but um, I have a lot of friends who are parents and uh, family members who are parents. So um, that picture just came from a New York Times article about some study done with babies, some sort of um, uh, brain study for, with babies. And I can't, I don't remember exactly what it was. It was a long time ago, but I... I kind of love the idea of, um, just an innocent child being probed. So, um, profoundly (laughs) by, and, um, yeah, what is it? I'm I'm bumbling on, but the EEG and uh, yeah, so I just thought it was a perfect picture, but also, um, for a long time I've been interested in just, You know, we communicate with people uh, and we use facial cues and body language and also the words that are coming out of their mouths and the way that they intonate their words. And there are a lot of ways that we pick up information about other people. Um, But one thing I've always sort of wished would be possible would be some sort of visual representation of their brain activity uh, Mm. when they get excited or perplexed or, you know, something happens in a conversation or just anywhere when they're out and about. I wish that that little extra information could be there, you know, and interpreted appropriately. But like, what part is lighting up and why? And like, and for different people, it's going to be different things. And so I'm, I and I often wonder, like, what the hell is my brain doing right now? Because, like, I'm so excited. I wish I could, like, see something happening inside. And the same with other people, friends or whoever, you know, or if we're just like having a great time out, like, I just, what what are our brains actually doing? So I'm, I, I like to pretend that I, I could imagine the inner workings of of the brains of the people around me. And so that's why that, that picture uh, uh-huh. really spoke to
1: me. Did you ever listen to, uh, Any of Terrence McKenna's old talks? The ethnobotanist. He was famous for popularizing the methods by which to cultivate psychedelic mushrooms. Uh, He he and his brother. Um, Mm -hmm. But he was, you know, he was this very interesting author and sort of uh, pre-internet psychedelic raconteur. And he he would talk a lot about virtual reality and the future of, you know, like Um, Mm -hmm. post-modernity, this sort of, uh, like a revival of the archaic traditions and so on. And one of the things that he talked about was getting back to this sort of, uh, like using technology to get back to a state of telepathy where like cuttlefish, we are broadcasting the our internal states on our skin. Mm-hmm. And that we would, you know, he thought that we would move sort of beyond verbal communication and into this sort of constant, like ambient techno telepathy, where you would well, just always way, know what's going on inside somebody just mm-hmm, like you're in a about.
0: way that is what Twitter does and it has done on <laughs> a very global scale so especially if you have no
1: filter right yeah
0: right and and so many people don't so that's what's happening um, like I mean never in the history of humanity have we had such extensive communication prosthetics and that's what Twitter is that's what Facebook is I mean this global chatter but like the ambient awareness of all of these conversations that are going on and how people are responding to them emotionally, it's all there and it's all available to dip in and dip out of. I mean, it's too much for just like a a single brain to actually comprehend. And, you know, so of course we would need the help and, you know, there are plenty of researchers and uh, companies that are developing the artificial intelligence algorithms to like suss out actual semantic meaning. But even then it's kind of not clear what exactly... We're finding. So I'm really interested in these um, communication networks that are um, we don't really even know what they can do other than we've seen um, how quickly disinformation can spread and how damaging that can be to like uh, the sense of. Um, our reality, our collective reality as people who are trying to make decisions based on information. I think that that's one sort of like unintended consequence that we're just at the very early stages of exploring. Um, But I think that there's a lot more to come when it, um, in terms of what's possible and what's, what's going to happen with these sort of communication networks.
1: Oh my God. You know, this is something you actually, you brought up something we talk about on the show a lot, which is how navigating the uh, so-called InfoQuake, what Rich Doyle calls the InfoQuake, mm-hmm. and how, I don't remember who it was, somebody on NPR, it was another science writer was talking about this the other day, and I was, I was so grateful that this was on public radio, that they were explaining you know, that most scientists, most of the time, are still having to basically take the claims of experts in other fields on faith, you know, this is like, there's, there's a level of comfort, you know, like there's a threshold where we accept somebody's authority in a particular area and, uh, we're willing to listen to what they say and it doesn't feel like we're just exerting blind faith. But mm-hmm. as the world gets more and more complex or at least like mm, relevantly complex, right? Then even the experts in these various fields are, starting to discover that they're having a hard time keeping up with their own super weirdly specific micro sub-discipline because there's mm. papers on it published in like five different languages and they're all behind paywalls and like there's people working on it like on you know in uh like top secret programs at the same time as they're working on it in public programs and like nobody can possibly keep up with anything anymore or that's the sense that we get right mm-hmm. so how does this what does that look like to you as a science journalist And, and as a scientist and like, how do you think that we're going to make it through this without just totally succumbing to fake news or reliance, you know, just putting it one step removed from that reliance on a sort of black box algorithm to verify information for us, an algorithm we don't understand, you know?
0: Whoa, that's an intense question. And (laughs) I love that it has three implicit parts to it. Like, what do I think of the, huge amount of information as a scientist? Um, what do I think of it as a science journalist? And then um, will we succumb to black box algorithms? Is that a
1: fair summary? Yeah, yeah. That, okay. I mean, it's like, where do we... Yeah. If, if we can't trust other scientists to be experts and we still rely on you know, some... I mean, I'm sure that I'm not the only person in this audience, this listening audience, that has had a post automatically flagged for abuse by Facebook, by some thing, you know, wow, that's yeah. like, and you're just like, Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> so
0: yeah, it's like, exactly. can you imagine your
1: peer review is actually like hell 9,000, what, what the hell do you do? You know? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, okay. So as a scientist and knowing that you can't necessarily just trust your, you know, the person who's been in the field doing it the longest because they might not be as up to date. Or you know who who your go to experts are and just like work from that. I mean I think that's a great thing because science is so human. Uh, it's it's performed by human beings who have all of these biases and blind spots, and um, to to trust an individual to like give you the right answer in all contexts or, you know, a handful of experts or whatever is uh, I mean, it's narrowing. It actually doesn't, doesn't work the best way. So I think that the fact that there is so much more information does point to the fact that there needs to be, there needs to be another way to sift through it. So you mentioned just like behind paywalls or in other languages. So there are structural challenges to that for sure. Um, Uh, systemic challenges. But I do think that using algorithms is a very good approach. And I don't think that all algorithms have to be black boxes. I think that some deep learning or um, neural networks have that... uh, characteristic built into their, their, their fundamental, um, design, but there are also researchers who are very invested in trying to figure out a way to, I mean, it sounds like algorithms on top of algorithms, but develop (laughs) algorithms to explain those algorithms. And, you know, but like at a certain level you, you pull out and you have explainability like accessible, you Mm. know? So like maybe the ones that are doing like the deep research on the huge amounts of data, are the ones that are more difficult to explain that would need an algorithm to explain that. But maybe that next level of algorithm doesn't need, um, the explainability because it's, 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 uh, you can interrogate it in a more straightforward way if you see what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so I'm, and I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who, um, has just, uh, last year I ghost wrote a book on artificial intelligence for, uh, a CTO of a major tech, Technology consultancy. So, I have, um, as a science writer, I have a little bit of a background in artificial intelligence. Uh, so, I, I'm speaking from uh, someone who's from the perspective of someone who's done some some research in this. So, I'm not just um, speaking off the cuff. You're also um,
1: performing, I think, what will become a sort of inherent piece of the future syntax, which is hmm. like current science writing doesn't really put a lot of pressure on the researchers to explain who they are and like what perspective they're speaking from. And it feels like that's, that's going to be one of those things that as the, the domain of research gets more and more subtle, um, you know, like you're doing these things where the beliefs of the researcher may influence the outcome of the experiment, you know, Uh Uh then that's, that kind of stuff becomes essential.
0: Absolutely. And so context is is absolutely crucial. And that's the thing that right now artificial intelligence is terrible at. And that's why there will always, not always, but in the foreseeable future need to be people who are uh, aware of the context that, that algorithms lack and able to provide that. You know, a lot of people think that AI is just going to like do a control F replace for people in a lot of ways. But I feel like, and this is based on a lot of the research that I've done, that it is going to be one of the most intimate symbiotic relationships that we have in the future. It is, I mean, this technology is, will become as close to human as anything humanity's ever created. And it's not going to be able to do it on its own, it's going to be a uh, symbiosis and we will be learning from each other and and training each other. So um yeah, uh, but the context is incredibly valuable to all that. And also I love the idea of um what if science journalists, instead of just writing the straight news story, like dove in a little deeper. You know, there are some who do that. I think like at The Atlantic, Ed Young is um, very, very good at that. And um you get you get a few others who um Kenneth Chang at uh New York Times who who do this very well. Um Natalie Wolkovia at um well at Quanta magazine. I don't know. Let me see if I Ed Young he was
1: the guy that oh my God, I love his stuff. He's the guy that was writing about the microbiome. I contain multitudes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Natalie Wolkover at um, Quantum Magazine also tells a really compelling full story about, um, she writes a lot about particle physics and cosmology. And so there's a type of science journalism that happens out there that is more in depth and um, provides great context, but it's not necessarily the science journalism or the science news that pops up on Facebook feeds because Facebook and you know just the quick link culture really tends to gravitate toward the the compelling headline and then a very short description of what's going on. So this gets into what science writers the the relationship of science writers to all this information that's out there, all these studies that are coming out, whatnot you know there's a real incentive for a science journalist who's on the um, sort of like daily news churn to find the most eye-catching, story and write about it as quickly as possible and so if you're a science journalist most science journalists have the job of you know just like summarizing a research finding and putting it out into the world you know not necessarily putting it in context and it's pretty um, I think I'm afraid that that has while it's created a lot of jobs for science journalists I'm afraid that it has been damaging in some ways to Science, although science has its own issues i'm not going to say i think that I think that there there's something of um you know there's there's a relational issue here, so scientists uh, really have an incentive to get headlines as they're writing grants and up for tenure so there's that system of incentives that mean that you know scientists want to get the most eye catching they want to they want to follow the the sexiest research right and then Um, they're putting out these studies, and then science journalists pick them up and then put them out, you know, so it's a little bit of like, uh, the incentives are kind of perverse and producing a lot of noise uh, in scientific discovery right now. And in conclusion, I believe that algorithms that are shepherded by very context aware humans can be used to make a little bit more sense of it
1: that that reminds me of uh that piece that came out recently that just tore up the internet about how cephalopods have a extraterrestrial dna mm, oh my mm-hmm. god that was so annoying mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. have, yeah anyway not not necessarily a lot of a lot to cover there except that that's a perfect example of where the drive for researchers to hype up their research to magnetize interest and funding and the drive of of journalists to cover something like profound and weird is mm-hmm. coming together to form a vicious moire of <laughs> of uh yes knowledge eroding uh it's This is exactly, I mean, we don't, let's please not get into this, but this is exactly where this sort of thing, people, so many people don't understand uh, conspiracy, you mm-hmm. know, because the whole thing is, all you have to do is have an incentive landscape that organizes people's incentives toward a, you know, a, a collusion of some kind, like the deep state. Mm-hmm. Of course, we need criminal informants in these organized crime organizations. So like, it just happens, you know, and it's not like the cops are necessarily... You know, sitting, you know, smoking cigars with the mob bosses laughing about how much trouble they're going to cause. Anyway, yeah. so you lived on a Mars habitat. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yes, I did. That happened. <laughs> and it's, it's a project that's still happening. It's an ongoing project. Yeah. Um, we're, t- no we're doing a lot of hairpin
1: there. turns on this conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, but, I uh, love
0: it. It's pretty fun.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so so you were on Mauna Loa. And why, why Hawaii?
0: Well, so simulated mars habitats or, or space habitats come in a lot of different forms and they're all over the world you know there's one that's underwater there's one in morocco there's one a friend um who was on the mission with me just did in poland the two-week moon simulation there is one on devon island in canada and that's extremely remote um there's some I get huge like in Houston um, at Johnson Space Center, the facility there's um, one called the Mars Desert Research Station in uh, Hanksville, Utah. And what these have in common is isolation, some sort of isolation factor. So even if you're in Houston, you're inside a building and you're like in some facility that you can't get out. But if you're in Hanksville, uh, Utah, then you someone has to drive a very long time to, to reach you. But if you think about like Devon Island, That is an extremely remote location. So you have extreme isolation happening there. And um, if there's an injury, if something goes wrong, um, it could be a very long time until you're able to be evacuated or someone can come rescue you. So, one of the great things about the high seas um, facility on Mauna Loa is that it's easily accessible by helicopter. So, if there's a medical emergency, and there was in the last mission, um, medical personnel can access that uh, that site easily but it's remote enough so it takes like an hour from a sort of civilization or maybe two hours depending on what you call civilization to get <laughs> at it so you have the the great environment a uh, great isolated environment but you also have like something you know some built-in safety um mechanisms but uh, have you ever been to hawaii um yeah, yeah. so, you, so you think about the, like, the, the lava flows everywhere. right absolutely yeah. so like the the first question is, I mean, the first actual reason is because it looks like Mars because it's red, it has um, geological structures that we might find on Mars, like lava tubes, so caves created by coursing lava um, that we know exists on Mars and actually even the moon for that matter. Um, and these are these are really interesting structures. So if you have geologists on the crew, you can um, go out and and do some some actual studies that might be relevant to. Researchers who are um, interested in the geology of Mars as well. So, well, not
1: unless you're in, not, if you're not in a spacesuit, right? <laughs> yeah, you can't go
0: out just in your shirt sleeves <laughs> and because we know that that environment there's there's just very little atmosphere out there. <laughs>
1: right, I mean, that's got that's got to be like the most torturous way to spend four months in Hawaii.
0: Yeah, it wasn't the best. I mean, afterwards, I definitely swam in the ocean, but I do have to say and I definitely got sunburned because I did not have direct sunlight for four months. And I'm a very pale person. <laughs> um, well, when I came out, like we all came out and we had a press event, we were the first mission, uh, the first high seas mission. So, you know, there was, there was a lot of press there and they're very curious to know how we got along, you know, and, um, all these questions, but, Um, I put on a ton of sunscreen because the whole thing was conducted outdoors and we were eating like fresh fruits and vegetables for the first time in four months, which Uh was so lovely. Um, But you know, I just kept the sunscreen going because I'm super susceptible to burn. I'm super susceptible to burning and day two, I still hadn't even gotten any color whatsoever back on my skin (laughs) because I was so afraid. So I just, without sunscreen at all, stood in a parking lot um, outside of uh, the place where we had were eating breakfast and I just I went up in flames basically I was red for <laughs> <laughs> three days afterwards it was pretty terrible so um, yeah I just think about actually going to Mars and just never feeling the sun on your skin again or the breeze from like the wind just going through like running uh, moving through your hair I just I just I think that it would be very difficult what you you could simulate it. you could have some tanning beds, you could have a fan, you know i mean you can you can find some ways to simulate this, but Earth is so wonderful, and I don't think I knew it i I, I kind of knew it, but I didn't actually know it until I couldn't be a part of it,
1: uh, it so there was there was another person at Interplanetary Fest that talked about being a part of a Mars mission, uh, Nina Lanza. And on her panel, she talked about, uh, she was in Antarctica, so she mm-hmm. got the cold piece of it also, and said that when, it, you know, it being that cold, you couldn't smell anything ever, you mm-hmm. know, because there's just no volatile particles in the air, and how she was thinking about, like, how difficult it was, and how profoundly grateful she was to smell things again, and how she thought that going to Mars that one of the, probably the, one of the best things that we could do, I guess it's like, like the hot sauce, right? One of the best things that we could do for astronauts would be to send them up into space with like a spice box of essential oils of different kinds of plants and like fragrances that they, that mean something to them. Because I
0: believe it, that completely. Yeah. So Absolutely. I was going to ask you
1: what, what kind of stuff you really like, like that kind of stuff, what kind of stuff you missed in there and what do you think are the weird Uh, maybe like surprising things that we would want to bring into space with us that we take for granted?
0: Well, I guess two things come to mind. The first is, um, yeah, like essential oils seem like a very, very good idea. Um, We did a lot of odor identification tests because that was part of our study. You know, we just a quick summary. uh, We're looking at two food systems. Uh, One food system is like the pouch meals that astronauts on the ISS eat. So just add water and heat and you're ready to go. Uh, so they're very quick to make, quick to clean up. Um, they don't taste that great. They might be over salted. They might have like, be over fatted. They might just not um, have a great flavor profile and over time because they have such strong Characteristics of like salt and fat, your body kind of um, grows used to that, and so you they they just don't taste good over time. So that's that's the one food system that we looked at, and then another was the idea that if you're on Mars, you have gravity, so you could technically cook. So what if um, shelf stable ingredients were sent along too, and then you could make creative meals? So you could make a cake, you could make a pizza, you could make a stir fry or a beef tagine, and so we did all of those things, and we alternated um, like. Two days on like pre-prepared meals, and then two days on like the more creative meals. And we took a ton of surveys to um, that captured our mood, our feelings about food, our excitement, our hunger, our um, how much we were uh, satiated. Um, and um, and we took pictures of our plates and weighed the food and weighed the leftovers and weighed the what we didn't eat. You know, we were just it was a very intensive data collection experience around the food that we were eating (laughs) every day for all three meals. So um, that was, that was the main project. But along with that, we were doing tests to determine like if our ability to identify smells changed over time, over the course of the mission, you know, and we were the control group for uh, another group of NASA Guinea pigs that were um, in Galveston, Texas doing the bed rest studies. Do you know about this? No. So these people, were they laid at, um, I guess, six-degree angle head down to simulate the fluid shift and the um, muscle atrophy of low gravity, and they were also eating meals similar to ours and also taking um, these odor identification tests and mood surveys and all sorts of things. And so, and so they, they acted as astronauts, say, because this experiment wasn't going to go to space, but you could do the next best thing and test it on bed rest subjects. So anyway, one of the odor ID tests that we got was this, um, booklet with scratch and sniff, uh, little squares. And we would determine, you know, what was, what, um, is this grass, is this motor oil, is this a rose, is this lemon, um, is this rubber, is this, um, I don't know, charcoal. Uh, so you had all these things that you had to identify. Well, in the very beginning it was so easy. I was maybe one or two I had to think about, you know, based on the options, because it was multiple choice. Um, but you know, I just blasted through it by the end of the mission. I was confused by many of them. I didn't know if it was, I mean, nothing as extreme as like, um, rubber or lemon, but there were some options that I thought. Well, this could honestly go either way. So I observed in myself. My sense of smell became confused, and I wonder if that had anything to do with the sort of lack of diversity of smells, um, of odors in in the habitat.
1: Whoa, that's so. kind of scary. How long did it take? Did you? I mean, do you feel like you got it back completely?
0: Um, I don't know. I haven't continued with those tests, so I can't say. But I haven't noticed a certain deficiency in in my ability to identify odors. Just yesterday, I was um, I picked up a, a new book uh, that someone had, and I did notice that it smelled like a new book. And so, probably I'm I'm fine. I'm back to normal. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I love the idea of um, essential oils and a sort of like um, rotating um, odor therapy in a way of you know. Getting that fix. Oh, that's a really cool idea. I think I had another thing I was going to say, but I'm not quite sure if I remember it. And that was a long story, so that's I think okay. that it's fine. Yeah.
1: So um, there's a there's a theme here, whether it's spending all your time in the physics building, or spending all your time in a habitat module, or spending all your time uh, like on a laptop at a desk somewhere doing the writer's life, uh, which is the theme of confinement. Yep. And um, and then also, you know, you mentioned early in our email correspondence that you also teach or have taught in a women's prison. Mm. And for various uh, reasons having to do with my conscientious objection in the war for cognitive liberty slash living in Texas, I've had my run-ins with the law. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious what you have learned from your time mm. working with prisons and the people confined therein?
0: Well, the first time I ever heard about people teaching in prisons was when I was in college. And my math professor, my favorite math professor, uh, taught at um, at Leavenworth. And Mm. I asked her about it because, to me, that just seems really scary. Uh, The idea of, you know, being amongst hardened criminals. You know, I was young and kind of dumb. I didn't have, um, a good sense of what that actually meant. she said, well, um, I truly believe that education is uh, the best way to reduce recidivism. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not a proponent of punishment. I'm a proponent of education. And I participate in these programs because, um, I think that it's, it's, uh, it's the best thing that we can do. And so she also gave me some details. She said, you know, these are the sort of cream of the crop. These are very, um, motivated students, extremely well behaved. They have goals for themselves, um, inside and eventually on the outside. And they're, they work very hard. So she said, they're some of the best students I've ever taught. And so, um, that's when I first learned about that. But then I finally had an opportunity to do that when I was living in Nashville, um, and there's women's prisons there. And, and it was a fantastic experience because you do have these motivated students um, who are coming from um, all different um, perspectives and walks of life. And um, you just, especially when you teach creative writing, like stuff just starts to sort of crack open for them. And they get to say the things that they feel. And maybe think that, like, if they're taking an accounting class or something like that, you know, that's not a place where they can really explore some of the the things that they think about, Mm. you know. And so creative writing is just really a wonderful thing, I think, in prisons. Um, And at Columbia, uh, there's a program where uh, we publish poems and stories, but we solicit submissions for the journal by... Prisoners, and they so they submit poems and stories or or essays, and um, then we we publish those, and we also send letters to every one of them, um, telling them, you know, giving them feedback on their stories, whether or not they're published, um, and that's just, I mean, that's just that's that's like a real human connection, I believe, and and I think that that's a really important thing because, I mean, we're speaking right now during the prison strike that began august 21st and you know this is this is modern day slavery and there are more people incarcerated in the united states than in any other western country and it's because it's profitable and i think that something needs to change and i think that um I think that just like one thing at a very basic level that you can do is is recognize that people in prisons are still part of your community and um you have a responsibility to them mm. to to give what you can to to make sure that their lives are better, so that all of our lives are better.
1: Yeah, there's something about what well, you can tell a society by how it treats its its young, its elderly, it's insane quote-unquote right and it's Mm -hmm. it's criminals Mm -hmm. you know like how does it treat its prisoners Mm -hmm. and it's like these people. It's like oh i'd so much rather be in a european jail than Mm -hmm. an american jail Mm -hmm. i was a production assistant for a documentary about the american prison industrial system back in 2010 and yeah it's just one of the things that really stuck with me was that recognizing the humanity of the people that I was sort of inclined by conditioning to, to consider the enemy, mm-hmm. and you know not just the prisoners, but the you know the the, the judges, the probation officers, mm-hmm. all of these folks that were, in some sense, even more trapped in the right. This system. They're acting
0: out exactly the cruelty that's been embedded in the policies and like the the engineering of the system. I mean,
1: yeah. So, I mean, to, to paste that kind of roughly on top of the uh, space travel piece of it, I think, you know, part of it is, is that we don't, I I don't know how much mission design thinks about that sort of banal cruelty when it comes to forcing people. I mean, obviously they must, my buddy's dad is a NASA psychologist and I know that they're you know, doing extensive personality evaluations and that kind of thing. But yeah, there's just gotta be.
0: Yeah. I think there's a sense that, um, an astronaut who has proven themselves and appears to have the, the wherewithal to endure like a very long mission can take pretty much anything, you know, for a trip, for a chance to go to Mars. So I think that in terms of engineering, there are some considerations, but ultimately the um, there's a lot riding on the adaptability of the actual astronaut themselves mm. So, um, and what they can withstand. Yeah, space is an interesting thing because a lot of people really like to think about it. Like when I was a kid, I loved to think about it because it seems so vast and difficult to comprehend. And it seemed to like the idea of space and like that I was a part of it, that made me you know as a kid, it made me feel like bigger, and that was super empowering, but the uh nice paradox is that in order to actually engage in space exploration, you are ultra confined in a very tiny space I mean the international Space Station and those modules are just jammed packed full of stuff when you 're out in space you 're in a spacesuit you're you're contained you're confined it 's the smallest spaceship there is and uh, I, you know, a Mars habitat, I think really what would happen is it would have to be inside a cave somewhere to shield uh, from radiation, you know, Mm. cosmic rays and solar rays. So, and you're going to have the bubble that you're in anyway. And so, I mean, you go so far to explore and like, in big, I guess, humanity, (laughs) but you are stuck like in a dome inside a cave. (laughs) <laughs> it's uh really I – mean, I mean, you can go out sometimes, but you're probably not going to be going out that much. It's probably going to be your rover pets that are going to be doing a lot of the exploring because who knows what that Mars dust would do to damage systems, you know, and especially the transfer of that dust, um, like on – I mean, we know that moon dust was um, incredibly – harmful to the seals uh on like um astronaut the gloves uh that attached to oh, yeah. the spacesuits and also um the seals were broken on the um the boxes that the moon rocks were transported in so um the dust is corrosive and i mean it might not be as bad on mars uh but there's still not a lot known about that sort of challenge oh. so
1: yeah that specific thing mm-hmm. um Today we're—I don't know when this is going to get released, but we're recording it on what is the first day of Burning Man mm. uh, this year. And anyone who's been to—that's why the Man,
0: restaurants this weekend were not as crowded. Okay, oh thanks. yeah,
1: yeah. In San Francisco, <laughs> no doubt, it's like a ghost town right now.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, we're definitely able to get a table. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the the thing about that is, anybody who's been out to the playa knows that it really does sort of feel like how you imagine the lunar surface, you know, just this very Mm -hmm. fine white dust for as far as the eye can see. And it gets into everything and it never comes completely out. And Mm -hmm. my partner and I joke about, you know, everyone talks about how I went to Burning Man and, and now, you know, I've been liberated. I've had, you know, my life has been transformed. It's like, well, there's the other side of it, which is that you take a tent out to Burning Man and it just gets Mm -hmm. ruined, you know? And so it, it's like, well, it's been to Burning Man and now it's free. As in, like, it's in the free box at the store. You know? Yeah, like, that's if, right. If it's you liberated
0: can't... from use.
1: Yeah, if you... And actually, Cory Doctorow wrote a short story about that for the Project Hieroglyph compilation, where he Burning Man as a as the, the setting for his characters prototyping stuff that they were going to take into space, mm-hmm. actually. So, I don't know.
0: Well, um, Hank Rogers um, is the... Uh, he's, he owns a rights to Tetris and he is a local space buff in Hawaii and he's affiliated with the high seas project and that he, um, the habitat that we lived in was, um, his, uh, he funded that NASA essentially rents it from him. Um, <laughs> and it, his architect, uh, is the one who designed it and, um, they have a significant presence of burning man. So it was, uh, It's probably no accident. I think that a lot of, there's, there's a ton of crossover between the Burning Man crowd and the space crowd. And, um, yeah, we're grateful for, um, Hank and his support for the project because it really made it happen. But there's a little bit, there's a little bit of Burning Man in high seas too. (laughs)
1: Right on. Well, I guess we, you're, you're a very interesting person and I could continue picking your brain forever, I'm sure. But, um, Out of respect for your time, let's wrap this up, shall we? Uh, (laughs) I have a question I like to ask everybody at the end of these, which is if you imagine that this show survives to be heard by people that, you know, won't be born by the time we're dead, you know, just like complete discontinuity between our lives and theirs. And, uh, that makes them probably very fascinating to us and vice versa. What would you want to know? And like, what would you hope to communicate through the, the aeons to someone who doesn't understand what it's like to be alive today?
0: Yeah. Um, huge question. (laughs) Um, what would I like to know? I think I would like to know in what ways they make their lives easier and in what ways they make their lives harder Mm. and how they, how aware they are of either of those things.
1: Mm. They might have to have an AI answer for them,
0: right? Right. And and would that make that easier or harder for them in what ways? Yeah.
1: Mm. And what would you say?
0: Um, I hope they're still reading poetry.
1: Oh, yeah. I love it. Kate, thank you so much. Where can people connect with you? Where can they find your work and stuff? So um,
0: I'm on Twitter, uh, kgreen. Green. I'm on Instagram, Kate underscore green. Yeah. I have a webpage, kategreen.net.
1: It's green with an E, folks, if you're not looking That's at right. this. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Super appreciate Thank you, Michael. It was a real pleasure. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, along with Third Eye Drops, the Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.